everyone! Before we get into the episode, I just wanted to let you know some really exciting news. We got to be guests on entirely the right sort of podcast recently. It's an episode that's all about Simon. And I just thought that y'all might want to know about that. It came out a couple of days ago. And you should go check that podcast out. There is a link in the description of this podcast. Thank you. Now on with our show. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, Season 2, Episode 30, That Which Doesn't Kill You, where we will be looking at Chapters 63 through 64 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of overcoming resistance. If you're new here, each week we will be examining a section of The Wise Man's Fear through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text and apply to our real lives. We will also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian phronemos of the week. After that, we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact, and then we will share recommended things of the week. Finally, we will wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Secondly, we assume that you have read The Name of the Wind, The Wise Man's Fear, and probably The Lightning Tree and The Slow Regard of Silent Things. Though, as I have told many, 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 many people on Instagram... It is a much better experience to listen to The Slow Regard of Silent Things as an audiobook than it is to read it, at least for me. Also, a word to our community, please be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds that we love exploring. Second thing, something get out of the way before we start the episode. I know at some point in the last couple of episodes I mentioned that we were waiting on good news. Good news did not happen. Mediocre news happened. We're a little bit sad. Sorry if we're a little low energy this time around. That out of the way. Next order of business, join our Discord. Link in the description. Next order of business. You have 45 seconds to recap a very, very, very dense section. Are you ready? Yes. Timer. Right. I need to get a timer. Look at that. It's a timer. But you are ready. I am ready when you are. I am ready. In three, two, one, go. After growing bored under Alvaron's suspicion, Quoth flees from his quarters to find Dennis's mission, so on Tenery Street he loiters. He discovers his friend watching a play on the corner. Quoth learns of Dennis's current ends, and the news of Master Ash's patronage leaves him forlorner. Upon returning to the estate, Quoth confronts the mayor and nearly seals his fate until they discover Stapes removing a dead bird from its lair. Stapes, Alvron, and Quoth mend fences and send Dagon to arrest the traitor, but Codicus flees the manse, so they'll have to catch him later. Stapes gives Quoth two rings, one of silver and one of bone, to show appreciation of things that bind them together alone. 34 seconds-ish. No cherries for me. No cherries for me either. Deal with it. There's your raspberries. So let's talk about this passage a bit, because there's some really interesting stuff going on here. First things first, though, I want to make sure that we are making the connection of why we chose the lens for this section. Yeah. So we're looking at our passage here through the lens of overcoming resistance. And the thing that we saw in this is Quoth finally starting to 
buck against doing what he's supposed to do. What he's been told to do, what he assumes he has to do. Yeah, this is where Quoth starts to challenge social norms, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. Sometimes he gets damned lucky. None of this is necessarily about Quoth making good decisions. He mostly gets lucky that he made some better deductions earlier on, and then some timing helps him out. There's also the section of these chapters that deals with Denna, and content warning, there is references to abuse and abusive relationships and domestic violence and such. She is doing something that is common amongst people who are treated poorly, which is defending the person who's treating them poorly. She is resisting Quoth's rather ham-fisted attempts to, quote, help her, or, quote, help her help herself. I'm going to chalk it up to he's young and hot-headed and he doesn't actually know interpersonal communication as well as he thinks he does. It's also where we start to see a little bit of actual friction in his relationship with Denna. Heretofore, the two of them have been pretty much almost entirely simpatico. With the exception of Traven. Even then, there was not a whole lot of actual conflict between them. They had a little bit, but it was quickly alighted over. So anyway, let's start us off here with the Gilded Cage. We begin with Quoth trapped in his chambers with nothing to do but lose it tack to Brayden. Now, this is one of those things where there is definitely a resistance that Quoth is making for himself. He says he was trapped in his rooms. He was not physically trapped in his rooms. What it was is that he wanted to be available at any time of the day for whomever was looking for him that was sent by Alvaron. He has inferred that that means in his room. He is not currently being guarded. I would actually say it's probably closer to feeling like you're on call. I don't know if you've ever done on-call work in any job you've ever done, but it means that you have to be available to either get to an office or get online within a set SLA. Service level agreement. Correct. Usually it's between 15 and 20 minutes within receiving the call. And that means you pretty much have to be tethered to your phone and your internet connection at all times. And that generally means you can't leave your home. Things are getting better with cellular data, but they aren't. You can do your job from the mall better. Yeah. I've worked on call pretty frequently, especially in the IT field. It's not unusual at all. In one of my jobs, an on-call weekend was functionally a work weekend, even if nothing ever happened. I couldn't really dedicate any time knowing that it could be interrupted at any time. So if I wanted to do chores around the house, I knew that at any moment I could be getting a call because something was broken and I needed to come fix it. If you wanted to watch a movie, if we wanted to go out to a movie, if we wanted to go have dinner. Yeah, I had to wait until my on-call shift ended. Oftentimes I had to deal with juggling, could I just run down the street to pick up a cup of coffee and hope nothing broke at that time? Usually I was able to swing that, but you know, I knew that, yeah, I had a 15 minute SLA, so I'd have to make it quick. So I get where Quoth is coming from here. And because he knows that the mayor could call on him at any time, he wants to make it as easy as possible. 
That said, we also know that the mayor keeps pretty extensive surveillance of his grounds. So, I mean, theoretically, if Quoth wanted to, he could very easily just choose to go down to the garden and go for a walk, get some fresh air, smell some flowers, you know, have a change of scenery, which would probably do him good. He does have options. He just doesn't think he has options or he doesn't want to trust that those options are really actually options. And that's what I'm getting back to. So for those of you who have listened for the entirety of our podcast, up until about a month or two ago, we didn't have a place to sit that wasn't the floor in our guest room to record this because we have been planning when we get a house, when we get to move out of where we are now, we're going to get the furniture that we wanted for the room that we wanted to set up. And so we trapped ourselves kind of in this put up with something now so that the future could be better. And that's kind of what I mean by what Quoth is doing, where instead of I realize that I'm being watched, so going to the garden isn't really that big of an imposition to whoever's trying to find me, that doesn't enter into his brain. Or if it does, he dismisses it. And that's the same thing with us wanting to spend the same amount of money, or actually it would have been less if we had done it a year ago, on a couch that we were going to buy anyway, because we wanted to save up for something that we thought was going to happen sooner rather than later, but we had no definite time frame for. Still don't, but we bought a couch anyway, because at this point we've been putting up with suboptimal situations for so long that it's kind of souring the hopeful thing that we have been keeping in our mind as almost a trap for our present. Sometimes it feels like it's really easy to mortgage the present for a future that may not arrive. And you got to balance that. So anyway, let's move back to the story here. So finally, when the summons come, Quoth discovers that all the birds are still flying around. Still alive in that gilded cage. Still singing. And Stapes is staring daggers at him. And Alvaron, because this entire court system and nobility and everything is built around passive aggression, is just, so you little upstart kid, you drink what you gave me. Let's not forget Quoth's tea is not just tea, it's laudanum. It's a narcotic. It's not so bad if you're already addicted to narcotics and can function. But in the same way that when I haven't had a beer in like three months and I have one and I'm like, oh, right. My tolerance for this is way lower now. Crap. Yep. It's also pretty pointed that the cod liver oil is mostly full, so the mayor hasn't drunk it down the way he was supposed to. Yeah, this is all pretty damning right now for Quoth. On top of that, I gotta say, the mayor is kinda cutting off his own nose to spite his face. Even though he doesn't really seem to trust Quoth and Quoth's ministrations, he is feeling better, and he hasn't been having Codicus's medicine. <clears throat> medicine. So this is at odds with like seeing the results of something 
and not attributing the cause to it. Yeah, it's the fallacy of false cause. It's a form of it anyway. It's where you mistake correlation for causation or vice versa. So meanwhile, the acid test that they had set up with the Sipquicks is really what is obscuring things. Like you and I, and hopefully anyone else that is listening to this, spoilers if you don't know, absolutely completely understand that the problem is that Stapes doesn't like having dead birds in the room <laughs> and has been replacing them. We'll get to that. It's not about spoilers. It's, that's something we'll talk about just a little bit later in this episode. I know, but it's important to this discussion. But based on the data that the mayor has right now, there is reason to believe that even if Codicus's medicine isn't helping, there's no reason to believe that it's poison because he's agreed to this argument that if the birds are affected by the medicine, then the medicine is harmful, is poisonous. And so that means that if this recovery is going on right now, it is not related to anything that Quoth is doing. Because the hummingbirds are still alive. Exactly. So based on the data available and the premises that they had previously stated, yeah, he's not making an unreasonable assumption because we also know that his illnesses in the past have come and gone in waves. So he'll go through a period where he's doing terrible and then it just kind of stops. This could be that. He doesn't know otherwise. So when Kvoth goes to visit Codicus and get the next batch of medicine, Kvoth starts to realize that Codicus isn't quite the fool he's taken him for. Codicus puts a little trap out there. He says, oh yeah, can you pass me the acid? And Kvoth's laudanum-addled mind has to think very, very, very carefully. And of course, he relies on his edema rue training. And did it work or not? We don't know. I'm going to assume not. And part of it is that Quoth has to figure out the challenge of how to act like he doesn't know something that he clearly knows, which is the classic Meinertzagen's haversack problem. I've talked about it before, so I'm not going to talk about it again. But it's also the challenge that you see in the book Cryptonomicon, which is one of my favorite novels. It tells the story about a group of code breakers in World War II who have to figure out a way to prevent the Nazis from discovering that they've broken the code. So they have to go to elaborate lengths to make it look like they don't know what's happening. So that means sometimes they have to throw battles that otherwise they should win, or they have to come up with other ways that they could have discovered the information that allows them to win, or to make it look like they've discovered it through other means. And Kvothe, of course, is not really in the headspace to do that kind of bluffing and double bluffing at this point. He's a little high. Yeah, but in that same Dunning-Kruger effect-ish way that he talks about nobility, because that is the true mark of nobility, an unshakable belief that they can do anything, tan leather, shoe a horse, 
spin pottery, plow a field, you know, if they really wanted to. He is doing that, though. He's like, I definitely can bluff my way through this, even though I am as high as kite. Has no self-awareness. And as we'll discover later on, it may not matter how good Kvothe's acting abilities are in this case, because there is a trap that Cauticus has set as well, even beyond just Kvothe's personal interactions. But we'll get to that. On his way back to his rooms, he takes the long way around. He does this because he realizes Alvaron does not trust him. Cauticus is suspicious of him. And he needs to find a way to get the fork out. Yeah, he hasn't really taken the time to get the lay of the land, which is something he probably should have done earlier. Right, but he trapped himself in his rooms. Speaking of that whole trapped himself into his rooms, he decides at this point he's just going to go for a walk in the garden. He's letting go of some of the, I have to be right here all the time or they're never going to find me. So he climbs out the window up onto the roof and makes his way to the gardens that way. And all I can think of when this passage is happening is that he's kind of doing the thing that I do in video games, where if I can get to a higher vantage point to view my surroundings and kind of take a bird's eye view, I guess, of everything, kind of like plan my route because it's easier to do from above than it is to do on the ground. And later on, there are parts that make me think, okay, Assassin's Creed much? This is also, if he's looking for a way out, the roofs might be a lot easier. It's going to be harder for guards to get up there. They're not necessarily going to be looking for him that way. They're not necessarily going to be as agile as he is. It's probably the smart way down. By going up. So it's night at this point. And most of the lights are out in the manor, except for one in Codicus's tower. So he scales the tower. And he takes a peek inside. And who should he see? Eventually. But Stapes. He can see Codicus, and he knows that there's something happening. And he has no idea who Codicus is talking with. And so he does, again, with the whole video game logic, the little creep around trying to figure out if he can see Codicus's conversational partner. And the detail of the glass was leaded, so I can't possibly hear through it. I have no idea what's being said, so misunderstandings abound. But this is probably where Codicus is tipped off completely. That A, Quoth is subverting Codicus's hold on the mayor by cleansing him of the poison that Codicus has been feeding him. And confirmation that Kvothe actually knows his shirt. The jig is up. But Kvothe isn't really aware of that. He thinks that Stapes is conspiring with Codicus and that Stapes, who he's been viewing as untrustworthy anyway, is one of the key components to trying to off the mayor. He's seeing conspiracies. And what we're seeing is another case of false cause. I don't know. Is there a thing for assuming the worst in people? I mean, that's a separate cognitive bias. I don't know if it's strictly a fallacy, but he is definitely making some inferences about Stapes' motives. 
he is assuming something sinister because he sees him talking with someone who he believes to already have sinister motives. I think that that says a lot more about Quoth than it does about Stapes. His unwillingness to trust Stapes. I think part of it is as much as Quoth wants to pretend that he doesn't care about status, he clearly craves status. He wants it on his own terms, definitely, but he doesn't want to have to grant status or respect to another person to get it. He wants to just receive it. That's a very astute observation that I'd never really thought about. You can tell a lot about a person from the way that they treat someone that they view as a lower class or a lower status. Like people who treat service workers terribly are not the type of people that I would particularly enjoy being friends with. Neutral, fine, but like being an absolute bastard, no. On here, what we're seeing is Quoth sees Stapes as an obstacle to him helping the mayor. He doesn't trust him. He thinks that Stapes is an impediment rather than someone who could help him in this. How different would this story have gone? This just couple of weeks for Quoth. How different would it have been if he had trusted Stapes? If he had been forthright and honest? He has a couple of things that he could work through here. First of all, he knows that the mayor and Stapes grew up together. He knows that the mayor trusts Stapes implicitly and that if he wants to gain favor with the mayor, gaining favor with Stapes would go a long way. He could have chosen to keep Stapes within his council. He could have chosen to treat Stapes with respect and not tried to just go around him. Because up to this point, he has viewed Stapes strictly as an obstacle. He could have been an ally. I mean, they both come from common backgrounds, even as Stapes is very wealthy in his own right at this point, and his family is very old. They both are people who are used to working for a living, who... The court views as having little to no status. And Stapes is someone who is always listening and watching. He sees everything that happens. This is someone that Quoth could have a mutually beneficial relationship with, if he went into it thinking that that's how this was going to go, that that was a beneficial way to move forward. But instead, he saw Stapes as just a gatekeeper that he had to get past. All right. And so now it seems like a great time to continue on to chapter 64 called Flight. Yeah, a lot happens in this one. Well, there's also a lot, and I mean a lot, of green highlighter in the first half of this section <laughs> in my book. So that means you have a lot of seven-word sentences to choose from, don't you? I do. Denna kind of breeds those. She does, doesn't she? <laughs> Alrighty. Well, we start off with Quoth ostensibly reading this history, I guess, that Codicus gave him about the Lackless family. It's not terribly informative, but it does hint at some of the things that the fandom has come to suspect, particularly as it revolves around Quoth's mother. They are not just called the Lacklesses, but sometimes called the Luckless family. The question of how can a family thrive when the eldest heir 
forsakes all family duty. And it makes me wonder how old this book actually is, because it could be talking about Talia Lackless. Or somebody else in distant history. Right. To say that the Lacklesses are luckless is, I think, missing the point. They are an old family and has survived to be very old and endured a lot of hardships that would have probably ended lesser families. And there's some luck involved in all of that. I mean, it's sort of like how in the old Fantastic Four and Spider-Man comics, Johnny Storm always thought that Peter Parker was the luckiest person alive, even as Peter would absolutely beg to disagree. Because in Peter's mind, the universe was constantly against him as Spider-Man, as just sort of a down-on-his-luck, hard-luck case. But as far as the Human Torch was concerned, Peter Parker had people who loved him. He had dealt with unbearable hardships that would have broken lesser people and still, through luck, managed to persevere through them in many cases. And, you know, having that sort of resiliency built in, whether through character or circumstance, is its own kind of luck. Yeah, so I absolutely adore how we kind of get this break from that book section of Quoth just chucking the book and the description. <laughs> I tossed the book onto the table in a way that would have made Master Lauren spit blood. As a genealogical work, it's probably got its uses. However, as something upon which to base the courtship of another person, it's definitely lacking. Pun intended? Yes, always. <laughs> Quoth is still artificially stuck in his rooms. He's getting more restless. He hasn't been called upon in multiple days. However, Codicus has let other people know that Quoth is interested in genealogy. And the rest of the court says, oh, that must mean you want gossip. Let me write down a crap ton of gossip for you. And Quoth just shoves it in another room. You'd think that if he's that bored, he might want to read it. But apparently he's just that opposed to being a gossip monger. I don't know if it's that. I think it's that at a certain point, the gossip is no longer shocking or salacious. He's seen it all. Not interested. Okay. I assume that most of it is who's boinking who. It's pretty banal. So when Quoth finally decides to poke his head out the door and see if maybe he can go for a walk, get some fresh air, he discovers that there's a guard outside. So he actually is trapped. Sort of. If he leaves his room, he's supposed to have an escort. Quoth does not want an escort. So he just goes right back into his room. And out the window. Continuing to LARP Assassin's Creed. And naturally, his destination is Tenery Street. He goes looking for Denna. Spotted her about an hour after he started looking. He stopped by 12 different inns. For someone who won't actually talk to the girl, like be up front and have a real conversation and is so afraid of making her disappear on him, he's really persistent in trying to find her. I have to imagine that those conversations with the various innkeepers and barkeepers and patrons and the like in those inns was a little weird. Hey, have you seen this girl? Right. Uh, who are you? 
Are you some sort of stalker? I mean, he kind of is. I know. It's creepy. Well, he does find her. She's watching a play, Three Pennies for Wishing, the one with dead nettle. And we get a little bit of the prose from that play. I've got cures for what ails you. My wares never fails you. I've potions for pennies, results guaranteed. So if you've got a dicky heart or you can't get her legs apart, come straight away to my cart. You'll find what you need. And ew, for one thing. But also, I have a feeling that the script for that character is meant to make you feel ooky because he's meant to be a caricature and overtly evil. I also suspect that this is a case where some of the gossip around Quoth's role in Alvaron's court may have leaked out to the general public. And so this suddenly becomes something that's in the zeitgeist. People are thinking about someone that they think of as this huckster selling snake oil and charms and things like that and tricking people. Never mind that Codicus is actually the dead nettle in this scenario. I mean, I don't know that that's actually true because Alvaron keeps such a tight grasp on things like his health. Alvaron does, but his staff, though, are another story entirely. And it's also possible that Codicus, who we know is an inveterate gossip, may have leaked some stuff. Possible. I also, though, think that this is a little bit of maybe narrative shorthand on the part of Patrick Rothfuss, not so much a concerted effort by the gossip mongers to spread news about Kvothe possibly poisoning the mayor. It's ambiguous, but it is enough to make Kvothe a little nervous. Or at least see a coincidence. So the two of them steal away and they find a little quiet spot to catch up, which is a small seat carved into the face of the shear. And there, Kvothe and Denna have a chance to catch up. And they've got a lot to talk about. Except most of what Kvothe has to talk about, he can't say. And most of what Denna has to talk about, she won't say. But she does have one major piece of news. She finally has a patron. An official one. The one that Kvothe doesn't like, Master Ash. And I find it interesting that she asks, you called him, what, Master Elm? Ash and Elm. Here's where we see a little bit of that conflict that has been simmering for a while between the two of them. First, I want to mention, though, she seems very confused about certain things. Like, Kvothe asks, so who is this person? And she answers, you know I can't say anything. But she's kind of got this brittle mask over her face, trying to figure out what Kvothe means. Almost like she was compelled to forget things. This whole section, anything that she is being reminded of by Kvothe, she kind of takes a second and is like, wait, did I tell you that? Wait, did that happen? Wait. So we know that she's got a fresh bruise on her face. It's almost like she's suffering from a concussion. It's possible that she's suffering from a concussion. It's also possible that in this world where there is magic, someone has compelled her to maybe slip her mind. It's possible. Now, we also have Kvothe saying and reiterating, I called the guy Master Ash, and then when he said it, 
it felt like a mouthful of ashes. And he's asking Denna, do you at least know his real name? And she kind of waves it off. It's like, probably. That's not exactly a convincing answer. Nope. And then she runs her hand through her hair and finds the braid that she'd put there, or at least ostensibly she'd put there, and seems surprised to find it there and undoes it. We also know that later on in the story, it seems like those are Yillish knots that she has put into her hair. The word beautiful gets put into her hair at one point. And I almost wonder if there's a form of magic being performed in those knots. It's possible. We know that she spent time in Yill before coming to Ventus. That's where her last letter to Quoth was from. Turns out she's actually sent three. No wonder he missed him, though. <laughs> right. He's been destitute, drowned, locked inside of rooms in the mayor's estate. On the other side of the world from where she sent them, probably. That's true. <laughs> I mean, leave aside all that other stuff. On top of that, the mail system in the Four Corners sucks. Right. <laughs> system. Anyway, as we go along, we get into this conversation that is extremely uncomfortable, especially for someone if you have been through an abusive relationship. I have been in a relationship that was emotionally and verbally abusive and seemed like it was leaning towards potentially turning physically abusive before I got out, although one could argue that it had already gotten there. And it's so hard to read a character saying, he hit me for my own good. I needed to look like it wasn't my fault what happened in Traven. I needed to allay suspicion. But he's the one who told me I needed that. And he hit me. And then, again, with a fresh bruise. That's not from last fall. That's from supposedly she fell off her horse or whatnot. Her horse got scared by a snake. It's bullshit. And Kvothe knows that it's bullshit. Yeah. We know that Kvothe, in his objections to all of this, his heart is in the absolute right place. Although, again, with him being young and also his personality being very justice-oriented, there's this thought that if you just convince the victim that they are a victim, that they don't deserve this, all this other stuff, if you can just force them into knowing their self-worth or whatnot, that you can rescue them or prompt them to rescue themselves. Like I say, Kvothe's heart is in the right place, but he is not going about any of this in a way that will actually achieve these noble goals that he might have. All he can do is be supportive and listen without judgment. And he doesn't do that. No, he does not. Quoth is not a model of practical wisdom. On top of this, even as he is going through situations that are traumatic and could be considered almost self-abusive, also his relationship with the system that is the university is pretty abusive. He's not sympathetic to Denna's, I guess, excuses or reasons or thoughts about why she's, quote, okay with this behavior from her patron. And he doesn't draw the correlation 
on his own. It will later be drawn for him, but he's still acting like a bit of a jerk. He has a lot of the, you should just. You should just should never come out of your mouth. Oh, just do this. I don't know anything about this situation, but I think I do. So therefore, just do what I would do, which is not probably actually what he would do in that situation. He has not got any self-awareness. Yeah, and Denna has her reasons for making a lot of the choices she's made and for associating with the people she associates with. The right call for Kvothe here would be to say, well, I'm here for you, I care about you. Whatever you think is best, I'll support. And I will help you get the ever-loving fork out when and if you want to pull that ripcord. And then Denna is just done with the conversation and says, can we just not? And then they go back to their very light, bantering, no substance conversations that at least she's not going to leave. We do get a few hints at the identity of Master Ash. So for one thing, we know that he's a surprisingly good dancer, almost as if he's been taking dancing lessons. So right off the bat, who else do we know that's been known for dancing? It's Brayden. Yeah, we, we know. We've also got that he's helping Denna research ancient genealogies to write songs, get those under her name, almost as if he's been around for a long time. So I think there are two possibilities for who Braden Master Ash really is. One, he could be Cinder. The other possibility is he is one of the Amir, because even though they're presented as sort of these people dedicated to the greater good, the greater good. We know that they have also done some pretty atrocious things in that service. I have my suspicions that it might be the latter. Fair enough. One other thing to note. Kvothe does offer his services as a amateur physicer. And Denna says, no, I can take care of myself. There's also some ooky things about the type of doctor that she could afford being someone that you wouldn't want to touch you. Eh, I don't want to overlook that, but I also don't want to discuss that. Yeah, that's fair. Back at the mayor's estate, hours later. So when Quoth walks up to his rooms, having decided to take the front way in this time. The direct route. He finds not one, but two guards now who are a little bit miffed that he has disappeared on the one. I guess his name was Jace. Well, at this point, Kvoth does a little bit of deduction and trying to find out whether or not Alvaron was the impetus behind the guards being assigned to his room, or if it was Stapes, because remember, he is insanely suspicious of Stapes. And he infers from their answers that it was Stapes. And so he just goes and throws propriety out the dang window, directly walking, angry as a sack of cats and bees, to Alphiron's rooms, which is the dumbest decision that he could make. So he manages to catch Alphiron just as he's leaving his quarters, and he calls him out. Alphiron does not take kindly to this, and uh, escorts... The little shirt into his room. 
And it's once they're back in Alvaron's quarters and he sees the look on Alvaron's face that he realizes the gravity of his error. His heart is now sinking as deep into his feet as it could possibly get. Yeah, all that bluster goes out the window when he realizes that for all of his physical weakness, Alvaron's granted power to go back to those musings that Alvaron shared earlier is immense. Alvaron can have someone hanged if he wants with just a word. Alvaron can have someone tortured, someone sent into a gibbet. He can do pretty much whatever he wants. He can order it and it will be so. The mayor was not bound by any rules. Previously, any time that Quoth has come up against blowhards, they are bound by something, some sort of rule or unspoken standard. Like, guards in Turbian wouldn't beat you in the middle of the road. A dock worker would not chase you if you ran. Even Ambrose, as stuck up and privileged as he is, isn't going to do anything in front of the masters. There are rules. This is not Nam, this is bowling. There are rules. So Quoth is a breath away from potentially being killed for his impudence. And he is saved by the fact that Stapes has taken the opportunity while the mayor is supposed to not be in his rooms to clear out the birdcage full of dead birds. As soon as both the mayor and Kvothe realize what is going on here, there's this moment of clarity. We should have been honest with the person who was taking care of the birds for you. And we discover that Stapes hasn't been removing the birds out of malice or anything like that. There's been no conspiracy. It's simply that he thought that the birds were contributing to the mayor's health. Giving their life so that the mayor could live. Also, unhygienic to have dead birds in the room. Two, he didn't want the mayor to be sad because there's the whole reason that the birds were there was to cheer him up, right? Ostensibly, yeah. And he saw the mayor's health improving when the birds showed up. So, of course, he wanted to make sure that they stayed alive or that the mayor thought they were still alive. There was nothing but concern for his friend behind all of this. So, while I am not a proponent of necessarily naming your lab rats, I think Foth might have done himself a favor had he named some of the Sipclicks. Yeah, or at least had a catalog of who they were or what they looked like. Because those details kind of matter, and if you can't tell <laughs> which ones are dead, and they all look alike, and you just are like, well, there's 12 of them. You could be missing something that could, I don't know, save your life. And so here is where Quoth and Alvaron reveal the whole plan to Stapes. It's at this point that Stapes understands the gravity of his error, and they understand the gravity of theirs. I like Stapes. Stapes kind of reminds me of me a little bit in some ways, because he's just like, okay, so I understand that you had to do it, but why adorable, pretty, gorgeous birds. Why not like that annoying yappy dog over there? <laughs> Couldn't you have picked mice? Couldn't you have picked something that nobody likes? Well, to be fair, 
Alvaron needed to have a pretense for having them in his room that wouldn't arouse suspicion. Right. Why would the mayor want a crap ton of mice? Yeah, that's a little weird. Then again, like the birds too is a little bit weird. It's also something that's aesthetically pleasing, so that falls within the territory of the idle rich. Eh. And so it is that Stapes, Alvaron, and Quoth mend fences, having learned the truth of everything. It's also here where they come to understand the depth of Codicus's betrayal. And Stapes is appropriately contrite. And they end up sharing a meal together. Fun fact, at one point it says we shared supper together. And then the next time that Quoth references it, it was lunch. So I'm wondering which one it was. I think in some cultures, lunch and supper can be used interchangeably. I know that like in certain parts of the South, they oftentimes are. I thought it was supper and dinner. It can be both. So like, for instance, my grandpa, if there was a big lunch, it was referred to as a supper. Okay, fair enough. The other thing I want to point out because I'm pedantic, Quoth mentions that when he was a child and homeless on the streets of Tarvian, blah, 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 blah. This was like a year or two years ago. <laughs> it's amazing how much time dilation happens when you're younger versus when you're older. So their meal is interrupted by the arrival of Dagon. Look, I'm just going to throw this out here. No one who shares a name with a Lovecraftian great old one is ever a good sign. <laughs> like... Ask yourself, what kind of parent names their child Cthulhu? Well, the type of person who winds up with Dagon. Because essentially, Dagon is in the mayor's employ so that he won't be in anyone else's employ. Among other things, yeah. He is a... a wild card. He will do whatever he's ordered to do without question. And in this case, Quoth is rightly questioning his life choices as he watches Alvaron just casually say, oh, and when you find Codicus, please cut off his thumbs. In many ways, when you look at the personage of Dagon, he is someone who has both immense personal power and also granted power because he has the physical skills to do whatever he needs and Mayor Alvaron grants him great leniency to employ those however he sees fit. What is most telling is that Quoth says, when his eyes touched me, all the deep feral instincts that had kept me alive on the streets of Tarbian told me to run, hide. Dagon is a predator. And I'm wondering if there's another identity within him. I suspect he may also be Amir. He is someone who will do whatever it takes for the greater good. The greater good. It reminds me a little bit of the great Terry Pratchett book, Men at Arms. It's one of the great Discworld books centered around the City Watch. And in it, we have two main protagonists, Corporal Carrot, who is an adopted dwarf, which is to say he's a seven foot tall human who was raised by dwarves and is probably the rightful king of Ankh-Morpork who doesn't really want the job. And then we have Commander Sam Vimes, who is 
basically dirty Harry in high fantasy. It's <laughs> the easiest way to describe him. He's hard bitten. He's no nonsense. He's kind of a curmudgeon. He's embittered. And Vimes is our principal protagonist. He's our POV character. And one of the things that Vimes muses about is that if you find yourself at the mercy of someone, you had better hope that they are not a good person. Because if they are a good person and they believe that you are a threat, that killing you is the right thing to do, they will kill you without a second thought, without hesitation. They will do whatever it takes to protect the greater good. The greater good. If that person isn't a good person, you can reason with them. You can bribe them. You can bribe them. You can wheedle them. You can threaten them. You can do all kinds of things with someone who, who doesn't have that strength of principle. And so we have the contrast between Carrot, who is legitimately a good person, a Boy Scout even, and Vimes, who is not, who will fight dirty at any opportunity. And... We find that Carrot, as pure and kind and good-hearted as he is, is the most terrifying one to find yourself at the mercy of. And I have a feeling that Dagon is a little bit like that. You can't reason with Dagon. There is no way to appeal to his self-interest. If he thinks that someone's murder or torture is the thing that will yield the right results, he will do it. I get the impression, though, that he is not good I get the impression that he is, at best, neutral. I would say he is unconstrained by such concepts. Fair enough. However, at this point, we find out that Codicus has left and set booby traps up in his tower, which have already killed at least one of the guards. And here we get a little bit of theory crafting on the part of Kvothe as to how Codicus could have caught on. First, he suspects that perhaps Codicus was suspicious because of the trick he tried with Quoth, asking him to pass the acid. Although, I would assume that at that point he was already suspicious. Yeah, he'd seen the mayor's health improving when it shouldn't have. There's also the fact that Stapes has been feeding him information. Knowingly or unwittingly? Probably unwittingly. I would assume so now. He also seems to have set his own trap because Quoth tastes a new batch of the medicine and finds that it tastes different than it should. Meaning it would probably have just offed the mayor. Yeah, if the mayor were taking his medicine, there would have been an effect. And of course, he promptly spits it out and rinses his mouth out with activated charcoal. Which, if you're not expecting someone to spit out a whole bunch of really black spit... It's a little disconcerting. Yeah. It looks like gunk. And... He didn't even tell Stapes and Alvaron what he was putting in his mouth. He lied. And then he spits that out. And it's like, if you had just said charcoal, maybe you would have had to have answered a really annoying question of why charcoal and then explain that charcoal absorbs the poison that is now firmly implanted on your tongue. But like, why lie about that? Well, Kvothe, as we know, is sometimes allergic to the truth. <laughs> for Kvothe, it's almost always easier for him to spin up a quick lie than it is to just say what's actually happening. Witness almost all of his interactions with Denna. So, having mended their relationship, 
Alvaron apologizes to Quoth, and while he knows that he can't ever acknowledge just exactly why Quoth was able to help him so much in this case, he can't offer him formal titles or lands or anything like that. Although he would if he was able to. In this case, Alvaron is happy to grant Quoth access to all of his resources. Quoth mm, infers that, I'm going to say. Alvaron says, tell me what you would like me to help you with, and I shall see if I can. Quoth is like, I get to look at all of the libraries I ever wanted to look at and see if I can find any information about the Chandrian and the Amir. Good luck with that. Right. It also means that if Quoth ever finds himself in a jam, he can wield some of that granted power from the mayor to get himself out. For now. For now. And here is where we find Stapes mending fences with Quoth as well, by giving him a silver ring which indicates peership. Stapes, at this point, remember, is peer to almost no one. Despite the fact that he is a manservant, and therefore by all rights should be a lower caste, he is a trusted confidant and friend of the mayor, and no one would ever insult him with anything akin to a lowly status. And so when Stapes gives Quoth that silver ring, it is a mark of equality. And that is something that Quoth doesn't really have. Right. Almost every single one of the rings that he would ever have gotten would have been iron. But that's not the only thing that Stapes puts into Quoth's hands. He also gives him a ring of bone. Quoth doesn't know this yet. He doesn't know what it was made out of. He doesn't know the significance. But if you've read the last 490-odd pages, or more than that, of this book, you will know that that is a mark of a debt that cannot be paid back. Because Stapes recognizes that Quoth has saved the mayor's life, and also Stapes' own. Had the mayor been killed, had the poisoning plot succeeded, Stapes and his family would likely have been destroyed. And Quoth didn't have to do any of this. Up until this point, Quoth has had no loyalty truly to the mayor. He's had loyalty to his own interests, and it's been in his interest to help the mayor. But this is the first instance of Quoth really sticking his neck out for someone else. He chooses to help the mayor because he thinks it's the right thing to do, not because this is something that'll help him. Or that he'll be rewarded for. So on the way back to his rooms, Quoth marvels at his newfound fortune. And this seems a lot like a chapter full of emotional whiplash. Yeah. For as high as those highs are, the lows were pretty terrifying. He's come through a lot. He just got off a roller coaster. Well, now it's time for me to talk about my phronemos, and I'm going to be honest with you, I'm having a hard time. And I'm going to take a page out of your book. Oh, a good page, I hope. I don't know. When you do it, I get both impressed and kind of chagrined. Are you saying that you picked a cheeky one? I'm saying that there's no real good main character to choose in this. So who'd you pick? 
Card number one. I think his name was Jace. All right. So let's hear about it. All right. So <laughs> the best I got for you is <laughs> he knows his duties quite well. He understands that Kvothe is recalcitrant, I guess is the best word for him. He's not overtly mean or pushy or anything. He's just quietly, confidently doing his job. You are to have an escort if you leave. And then he doesn't just assume that Kvothe has stayed in his rooms, because clearly when Kvothe comes back, Jace or whatever his name is, has discovered Kvothe has left. And then he doesn't fight Kvothe on, I guess we're going to go see Alvaron now. Well, he's just supposed to escort him, not stop him. Right. Also kind of in that it's your funeral kind of way. So there is something to be said for knowing what your job duties are and also not overextending. You do your job, you show up, work-life balance and all that stuff. And then you go home. And then you don't have to worry about who your boss has killed. I don't know. Well, that's a fine example. <laughs> I mean, who would you have chosen? <laughs> um, so, I mean, at this point, we know that Alvron has gotten outsmarted by Codicus. We know that Stapes, for all of his wisdom, is also sometimes foolish, and we see the results of it here. You could choose Dagon, but it's the same exact reasoning for me choosing the less scary. I mean, he was just following orders is the most terrifying thing you can say about him. Yeah, there aren't good options. I'll give you that. So I chose the best one? The least bad one. Okay. Sure. I'll take it. Awesome. Anyway, please regale us with an interesting fact. You got it. This one is about Micronova explosions spotted on distant zombie stars. That sounds way more interesting than what I just talked about. So we know that star explosions can happen on very different scales, from massive supernovas to plain old novas. Now scientists think they've identified an even smaller way for a star's surface to explode, which they've called a micronova. So it's the type of explosion that occurs in just one region on the surface of some stars, and it lasts for hours at a time, but it still packs a fairly significant punch. So specifically, micronovas occur on a type of zombie star, which is known as a white dwarf. These are the objects that are the leftover cores of dead stars that have used up all their fuel and blown most of their materials out into space. They're quite small, but incredibly dense, sometimes the size of Earth, but with the same mass as the Sun. They're also fairly enigmatic in that they often exhibit some weird behavior, and under the right conditions, micronovas can occur on their surface. This wasn't something that we've really understood until fairly recently because of the brevity of these events. Your typical nova goes on for a couple weeks, so it's in the sky for quite a while, giving astronomers plenty of time to actually observe it. Whereas micronovas last less than 10 hours. So unless you are actually training your telescope in that region at that time, you're not going to see it. Or more accurately, unless you are training your telescope at that region at the time that the speed of light would have gotten it to within the reach of the telescope. Yes, that is correct. But like I say, you have to be looking at the right place at the right time, which is a tricky thing. The sky is big. The universe is big. So Simone Scaringi, who is an astronomer at Durham University, is the one who was responsible for finding this. 
So his team stumbled on the strange phenomena pretty much by chance. They'd been working with the TESS spacecraft, which is a space-based telescope that launched in 2018. That's designed to look for planets outside our solar system orbiting around stars relatively close to Earth. Skaringi and his team, though, were specifically looking for variations in brightness over hundreds of stars. So they were looking in quite a number of areas. Historically, Skaringi has been interested primarily in white dwarfs, especially those that have neighboring stars close by. Most stars in the universe actually come in pairs, so they orbit around one another. So the binary stars that Skaringi studies consist of a white dwarf orbiting around a star like our sun. So when this configuration occurs, the super dense white dwarf actually acts kind of like a vacuum, sucking up hydrogen from its neighbor star. Eventually, the entire surface of the white dwarf is covered in a layer of hydrogen, and then at some point, the pressure of that layer gets so high that it sparks a thermonuclear explosion. And that's, that's a nova, right? Um, anyway, so we've known about novas for quite a while, centuries even. However, what Skaringi and his team saw in certain white dwarf systems was quite different. They noticed that one white dwarf would brighten for a short amount of time, just 10 hours or so. So it was very bright and occurred kind of sporadically in one object, Skaringi says. We had no clue what we were looking at for about a year. So the bright bursts were too dim and too short to be a typical nova, which goes on for weeks at a time. The team also noticed the same brightening events happen with other white dwarfs, also in binary systems. And that's when they started to put the pieces together. They realized that all three of these white dwarfs had very intense magnetic fields. The team wondered if the hydrogen that the white dwarfs were pulling off of their neighboring stars was getting funneled onto the star's magnetic poles, sort of like our own Aurora Borealis. They think something similar is happening with these white dwarfs with just much more explosive effects. So the white dwarf magnetic fields direct the material streaming off its companion toward the very small regions near the poles. And as the material builds up in these localized spots, it eventually triggers the thermonuclear explosion except they're much smaller than a regular nova and much more centralized. The researchers think these events are about one million times less bright than a regular nova, but they still burn through a lot of material about the size of a giant asteroid in our solar system. So the researchers considered other possible explanations for the brightness, including solar flares, but none quite fit their observations. Of course, nothing's 100% certain in science, especially when it comes to new discoveries, and there are still quite a few unknowns about these phenomena, such as the exact mechanism that would trigger an explosion. And it's also unclear how frequently they occur, though the researchers think they could be happening more often than we expect. Many systems may do them, and they may do them over and over again. But because they only last for about 10 hours or maybe 12, if you're not looking at the object at the right time, it will never reveal itself. So what do you think? I think that's pretty cool. I love hearing about astronomy. Yeah, I think it's pretty fun, too. So with that out of the way, it's your turn for Thing of the Week. I was going to recommend something that I've been meaning to recommend for a while. And once again, that's getting pushed off. So in two weeks, maybe you'll get to know about it. But the reason it's getting pushed off is because in the last couple of weeks, I have been absolutely obsessed with a game that I have two more achievements to finish and then I am done with the game, but it's still, I think, definitely worth a replay. And that game is called Tunic. The thing about Tunic is that it is hitting every single button that my little game designer heart 
could possibly ever want it to hit with only a few spots that make me go because I'm also a UX designer. So Tunic is in the same vein as like an old school Legend of Zelda, except it's with newer graphics and you play as a little fox. And the story itself is more dark and kind of tragic, which is also kind of like catnip for me. Will describes my favorite genre of game as charming indie game about grief or some shirt. And that means that the stuff I usually like is titles like Gone Home or What Remains of Edith Finch or The Unfinished Swan or Journey or Gree or any number of other ones. Rhyme is amazing. I love collectibles. I love puzzles. I love game design that is basically up its own. Nash, you do love a good autocolonoscopy. At least when it comes to games, yeah. Speaking of, I need to schedule a physical. Ew, thanks for sharing. You're welcome. Anyway, back to, back to what I was actually talking about. The thing about Tunic, it's charming, it's adorable, It's got a really weird, creepy vibe in some spots. It's full of collectibles. It plays with the isometric view. It has lots and lots and lots of discoverable stuff. So if you're persistent, you can discover so many secrets. And I love finding those things. And I also have an appreciation for designers that think that they are clever. And in this particular case, some of their puzzles are, I think, more to amuse the designers than necessarily something that the audience would find engaging. Case in point, some of the Reddit threads are like, I do not have time to figure all this stuff out. I know how to get the answer to the puzzle. And it is not worth my time, which is why walkthroughs on IGN exist. That's all I got to say. And there is no shame whatsoever in just finishing off the last few things that way. I did that. It's worth it. It's fine. No shame. But this has shades of The Witness. This has shades of every Zelda game I've ever played. This has shades of all of the charming indie games that I've played that I love. And it's available on Game Pass on Xbox. So if you have that, there's no downside. It's not a terribly long game, which is also something that I appreciate. I mean, I'm old, so spending hundreds of hours on a game versus 20 hours on a game that probably should have taken me 15 hours on the game. But I like to discover everything. I mean, I don't want to give too much of it away. The story unfolds itself slowly and methodically. And if you like things like the Stanley Parable or games that are critiques of game design, that's also catnip for me. As Will has said multiple times while watching me play this, he's like, this game was just laser focused designed for you. 
pretty much like I have to imagine their product meetings were talking about this user profile that was basically just you, just a picture of you. <laughs> like, how do we appeal to this person? Describe me in that situation, though. So they're sitting there thinking, okay, we want someone who is clever enough to appreciate game design in jokes. We want someone who is persistent enough to try stuff that really no one should try. Someone who, when they see a side-scrolling thing where most people will go left to right, they go right to left just to see what happens. I mean, if you're not going to the left side of the screen, you could be missing so much. Clever game designers do that. Also, clever game designers put something under every single freaking waterfall. Case in point. And this person probably also likes things that are about grief or something. Sure. Okay, I'm going to amend that. So the reason that I like the games that wind up being about grief is because there is an emotional heart and themes and things that are just that beautiful story. If a game wants to have an emotional impact that isn't terribly sad and depressing. <laughs> I would also really appreciate that if the rest of the game was over designed just in the same kind of way. It's just that grief is the one emotion that indie designers seem to understand. Or at least the ones that they think that other people need help processing. Anyway, back to this dossier. Then they're going to say, okay, this persona, this is someone who probably likes foxes. I'm just going to go out on a limb that they like foxes. I mean, who doesn't like foxes? And also, while we're at it, this is someone who is really fond of, like, the old school Legend of Zelda games for NES and Game Boy and Super Nintendo. While we're at it, I'm going to just throw out that maybe, just maybe, they like a good, solid mind fork. All right, sounds good. Maybe we throw in some ARG elements while we're at it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that... <laughs> Everything in that game is fair game. So, yeah, they pictured you. Yes. Yes, they did. I appreciate the hell out of it, though. I guess all I can say is that if you like over-designed, up-its-own-ash, adorable and creepy evolutions of Zelda clones. This is your game. Right on. And now it is time to give you seven words from the book. It's a dinner chapter. So of course there are tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of seven word sentences. So to continue on with my harping about whether or not Quoth was technically trapped in his rooms, I was trapped in my rooms again is seven words. Just, yep. Starting it off, both complaining, saying something that is not exactly true, <laughs> and seven words. So I have two that I'm kind of choosing between as my one for the pretty Instagram one. And I would like your help. All right. What do we have? We have... Have you given up the bookish life? And even this couldn't dampen my spirits over much. I think have you given up the bookish life is more fun. Then I will use that one. The answer is no, by the way. 
We have not given that up. And neither has Quoth. So it is your turn for seven words from life. All right, I got seven words for you. The plastic unicorn protocol is in effect. I mean, it's not in effect right now, but those are the words. Please explain it because I think that that's wonderful and amazing. And really, I think it's a good kind of lesson for people based on our own mistakes in the past. So as some of you may know, both of us have our own unique neurologies and they tend to not play too nicely together when we get tired or worn out or hungry or just generally stressed. Those particular neurodivergences, for me, I have an anxiety disorder and panic disorder. And I get depression and ADHD out of the deal. So when I get tired, I just get really lethargic and I get clumsy and careless and I have a hard time responding quickly to things. Derpy. Yeah, that's one way to put it. And when you get tired or hungry, you get angry. I snap at things really easily. I get overstimulated. I get confused more easily. I am less patient. And when we're both tired, I'm slow, clumsy, derpy. That makes you angry and impatient, which makes me further derpy and slow and clumsy and more withdrawn, which only makes things worse. So what we realized is that in these situations, we don't actually have to push through whatever we're working on. We have the option to stop what we're doing, go cool down, relax, rest up, do whatever we need to do to recharge, however long that takes, and then we can come back to it. And what we found is that we need a way to essentially break the glass to say, hey, no, stop, pull the chain, we're stopping the assembly line, we need a break. We need to short circuit the need or the drive to just keep going. And we also need a way to do this that is easy to recognize and also lighthearted because we wanted something that we could say that would be impossible to be angry while you said it. So plastic unicorn it was. Exactly. So either of us in those situations can say plastic unicorn and it is a no questions asked, no arguments given, hard stop. In the particular instance that we were making this whole protocol up, we were both very tired when we recorded the very first section of this episode. And there is nothing less pleasant for me than both getting snappy, impatient, and angry at you for going in loops while we're talking. And then I have to edit the same thing that already made me a little bit snappish, angry, or impatient. And I don't like being snapped at. I don't like feeling like I can't do things right. And I don't like hearing about it again, you know, a few days later when you're going over the recording and doing the editing. Neither of us do better in that scenario. We're not doing ourselves any favors by trying to push through. And since we had this preordained agreement, you know, we were able to know that either one of us could make that call and we could trust the other person's judgment on it. So that meant that if I could feel myself being not okay 
I could call Plastic Unicorn. Or if I saw you not being okay, I could call Plastic Unicorn and we could just be done. And I could do the same. If I just wasn't feeling it, I could call it. And if I could tell that you were starting to get your hackles up, I could call it there as well. We both had that option. I think it helped, for one thing, make the rest of the day go a lot smoother. I also think that we were able to bond over the ridiculousness of saying plastic unicorn. And it's also really fun to say the plastic unicorn protocol is in effect. I mean, that just seems like something out of a bad spy thriller. I love it. Seems up your alley. It is. So yeah, that's my seven words from life. So with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thanks for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we cover chapters 65 through 66 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of palate cleansers. Quick note, after that episode, we are going to do our own palate cleansing and do a short series on a different book. We haven't quite decided yet which book it will be, but it will be by N.K. Jemisin. We're looking forward to that, and we hope you enjoy that little break. So what it will be is kind of like when we did The Starless Sea. We'll break it up into reasonable chunks that aren't just like every two chapters, every three chapters, or 20 pages or whatnot. It'll go faster than our read-through of The Wise Man's Fear, but it will take time over weeks or months or whatever. Right now we're debating between doing The City We Became or The Killing Moon. We're not sure which one just yet. We'll let you know. If anyone has any input on that, that would be great. Seems like a good thing for a Twitter poll. It does, but I'd rather it specifically come from listeners if you want to get a hold of us. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and you can message us in any of those places. You can also find us on our Discord server. That is true, and there will be a link in the description of this episode. And with that... We'd like to thank our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get early access to the show, as well as artwork that I am going to be consistently late on. Sorry, I apologize. I am really bad at this. Also, bonus pods. We have part two of our second book of the Sandman series that needs to be recorded and disseminated, but it will happen before the end of June, I promise. And with that, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding. Why did your phone beep? That wasn't my phone. That was my tummy. That was your tummy? Yeah. It was just a little whoop letting some gas out. You farted. Not exactly. Not <laughs> exactly.
<laughs> it's complicated. I don't, I don't want to get into it. I'm at a loss. Keep going. <laughs> we may be invoking the plastic unicorn protocol sooner than we had hoped. 